1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone is built on, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And you can be seated. All right. So this morning we're getting into what is actually a little bit of a complicated part of Paul's argument. And uh, really my goal this morning is just sort of smooth this whole thing out for, for all of us. Uh, we're going to see some of the some, some themes repeated in what Paul has to say here. But the big takeaway from this this verse and what we will see in the first four full chapters of the book is stop dividing over your favorite leader. That's the whole point of the first four chapters, and that's really what he gets down to here. Um, and, and by the way, the reason he addresses that is because this has always been a problem in the church, of people dividing over their favorite leader, over whatever. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that here in the church in Corinth. We see that in the book of Galatians, the churches of Asia Minor, what Jesus was talking to, they all have problems. They divide over ridiculous things, things that just absolutely don't matter. And even today, we have people who divide over Bible versions. They divide over views on spiritual gifts, end times positions, their favorite music, their favorite leaders, and so forth. And the problem is, is that part of what we do is we try to justify these frivolous divisions in our mind. We think we're actually advancing the kingdom by by dividing over frivolous things. And we have, to, we have to say, of course, that are there times to divide? Well, of course there are times to divide when the gospel is on the line, when sin is not being treated with the, the seriousness that it needs to be treated. 
But for the most part, what we see throughout the Bible is an encouragement to stay unified with the people of God, to always seek unity. And one of the beautiful things I think that we see in Paul's life, and even here especially in this chapter, is, is just his unimaginable patience in trying to bring the church back together over and over and over again. He wants the church to work things out, and he is patient as he guides them towards unity. He doesn't just simply say, stop dividing over your favorite leader, though that would be enough. But he actually takes four chapters to, to work this out theologically why they should stop dividing. And we actually see four reasons here, and they're all theological-based. They're all based in the, in the character of God or some sort of theological argument. And we'll, and we'll look at these four. Um, I'll just give you a quick overview of, of the outline, and then, and then we'll dive in. But he says, stop dividing because we're the temple of God. He says, stop dividing because God will destroy those who destroy the temple. That's the second part. The third is stop dividing because these leaders that you keep trying to follow, they're actually your servants. They're actually your slaves. Why would you, why would you divide over slaves? And the fourth is stop dividing because your leaders will stand before God in judgment. Your leaders will be judged by God. And even sometimes when they think everything's right, everything is not all right. And God will sort that out at the end. So, so those are our four points. Let's dive in. So stop dividing because we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God, verses 13 through 17. Um, actually, I'm going to go back up to verse 11. We're going to start there. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it. On the day of judgment, God will reveal what we've actually built on in terms of what we've done with other people in their life. Have we encouraged them in Christ or have we, have we just done frivolous things? So verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, so there's, there's, there's the first two things that we talked about two weeks ago, right? Which is as we're, as we're coming together as the body of Christ, we can either build people up in Christ or we can do just things that are trivial and frivolous and just don't matter in the long run. And, and God will just kind of burn those things off and that's, that, that's what will happen in, in judgment. We won't suffer any sort of wrath. We won't suffer any sort of purgatory or damnation it's just those things will be burned away and and what really is going to last that's what we will be judged on but there's also the negative as believers we can actually tear each other down that's what paul also says verse 16 do you not know that you are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in you if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him for he for god's temple is holy and you are that temple. So he's using all these different metaphors and he sort of expects us to keep up with them. And the, the main metaphor he's transitioned to now is that the, the church of God, the people of God are the temple of the living God. And when he says you, he's not talking individually. This is plural. Y'all, y'all in Corinth are the temple of God. So, so each local congregation to some extent represents God collectively together because in as much as we have faith in Jesus, God dwells in us. Now, Paul will use this idea of temple in a couple of different ways. He'll use it individually. 
So each individual believer is the temple of God. We'll actually see that later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, hey, you guys are the temple of God. Don't go sleeping with prostitutes, right? Don't take your individual temple and go over to the temple of idols. That doesn't make any sense. So there is an individual aspect, but there's also a corporate aspect where we are all together the temple of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that, that God is building us up together as the temple of God. That's in Ephesians 2, I think it's verse 21. But this idea of temple is, is pretty pervasive in this section. And I think we need to understand that, that in our culture, temples are not revered. We don't, we don't live in a culture that are, that are filled with temples of really any kind. But in the ancient world, they were everywhere. They were all over the place, and they were beautiful, and they were gorgeous, and people even in Corinth would have walked by temples all the time. In fact, there are still some remnants of temples still standing in Corinth today and all throughout um, Europe today. They were, they were amazing. They were brilliant. They were, they were um, I think, just from an aesthetic viewpoint, they were lovely. They were filled with idolatry, but they were, in fact, just beautiful, beautiful buildings. The temple, of course, that he has in mind is, is the Jewish temple, right? The, the temple in Jerusalem. That's what he would have had in mind. There was a temple at Paul's time in Jerusalem that was the, the, called Herod's temple. But usually when Jews thought about temples, what they looked back to was Solomon's temple. That was sort of the high point of all Israel worship was at Solomon's temple. And what I want to do is I want to actually show you just how magnificent this, this temple was. So turn back to 2 Chronicles for a minute. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Second Chronicles chapter 3. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a, a brief little historical layout of, of the, the places where the people of God worshipped. Do you remember that when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, they worshipped at what was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was kind of the mobile home of God, right? It was made out of leather and made out of cloth, and they could set it up, they could tear it down, they could take it wherever God led them to. And that's where Israel really worshipped the Lord for about 500 years until God put it in the heart of David to build a temple, to build a permanent house in Jerusalem. Uh, David was not actually allowed to build this house because he was a man of war. He was a man of blood. God would not allow him to build it, but his son was allowed to build it. So David got all of these uh, furnishings ready, and he got everything set up, and the, the drawings laid out and everything. And then in, in Solomon's reign, Solomon built uh, what we now know as Solomon's Temple, and it was glorious. It was amazing. We're about to read uh, two chapters of how just how over-the-top, elaborate, and beautiful this thing was. Solomon's temple only lasted for four or five hundred years, something like that. And what happened is Israel fell into sin. And if you remember, God sent Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to come in and attack Jerusalem. Over several attacks, uh, eventually he, he seized the whole city, destroyed the whole temple, and, and the temple was gone. All the gold and all the, the fine furnishings were taken out. Seventy years after that, God started sending the Jewish captives back to, to rebuild in the Holy Land. And the first thing that they rebuilt, or one of the first things they rebuilt, was the temple. It was Zerubbabel who led this charge to build the temple. And if you remember uh, from Ezra, they're building this thing. They get done, and some of the older people who had seen Solomon's temple, they look at Zerubbabel's temple, and they're like, this is it? This is, 
This is our temple. This is nowhere near as glorious as what it used to be. And they're sad. Well, then fast forward another few hundred years, and we have Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, the political climate has changed, and Herod the Great's like, you know what? I'm going to win the favor with the Jews, and I'm going to build them a, a temple even better than Solomon's temple. And there's this massive building project that I think took about 80 years to complete, something like that. And it was huge. It didn't have quite the glory of Solomon's temple, but it was huge and it was impressive in his own right. When we read about Jesus and the apostles going to the temple, it's Herod's temple that they're going to, this, this rebuilding thing. And then we know, of course, in 70 AD, the temple was leveled to the ground. There is no more temple. And God says, actually, his people are his temple. He dwells in those who have faith in Jesus. So that's just a little bit of a temple overview here. But what we see is Solomon's temple. And I want us to to read through Solomon's temple here just to show how much care God had for the physical temple. And then we're going to extrapolate from that. How much more does he want us to care for each other who are the true temple of God, where God really lives in us? So take a look. Second Chronicles chapter three. This is just this is just amazing. So then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That would, have been, that would have been Jerusalem proper. Where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing hill of Ornan, the Jebusite. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. These are Solomon's measurements for building the house of God. The length in cubits of the old standard was 60 cubits. That's 90 feet. A cubit is about a foot and a half. And the breadth, 20 cubits, so about 30 feet. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and its height was 120 cubits, 180 feet tall. Don't worry about the measurements. We're getting to the good stuff. Okay? He overlaid it on the inside with pure gold. The nave he lined with cypress and covered it with fine gold and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. The gold was gold of Parvaim. So he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, its doors, and he carved cherubim, angels, on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Its length, corresponding to its breadth of the house, was 20 cubits, and its breadth was 20 cubits. So it's 30 by 30. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of the gold for the nails was 50 shekels, and he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. Now, just a little time out here. 600 talents is 45,000 pounds of gold. It's three dump trucks of gold for one room, the interior. In today's money, that's like $1.2 billion. One room, just the gold in that room. That's not all of the other stuff. The nails were 50 shekels. They were a pound and a half of gold, each nail that he made. Elaborate at every conceivable turn in the temple. Verse 10. In the most holy place, he made two cherubim of wood and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim together extended 20 cubits. Again, that's like, that's like from this door to the back. That's, that's 27 feet. That's how big the cherubim is. This is huge. Covered with gold. 
One wing of the one of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and its other wing of five cubits touched the wing of the other cherub. And this cherub, one wing of five cubits, touched the wall of the house, and the other wing also of five cubits was joined to the wing of the first cherub. What he's telling you is you got two cherubs, and they're, they're like this, right? And, and one wing touches the wall, and the other wing touches the wall. That's all he's trying to tell you. The cherubim stood on their feet facing the nave, and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics, the most elaborate and expensive fabrics, and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. Verse 15, in front of the house, he made two pillars, 35 cubits high with a capital of five cubits on top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars. And he made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up pillars in front of the temple, one on the south and the other on the north, that on the south he called Jachin and on the north Boaz. Chapter 4, he made an altar of bronze, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. And he made the sea of cast metal. It's this massive, like, half-round bath that would have been almost the size of the average swimming pool today, out of bronze. And it was up. It was huge. It was amazingly expensive. Verse 3, under it were figures of gourds for 10 cubits compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing the north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea was set on them. Again, it's this huge bronze bowl. And all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand breadth, and the brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 3,000 baths. That's like 18,000 gallons of water. He also made 10 basins in which to wash and set five on the south side, five on the north side. In these, they also were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering, and the sea was for the priest to wash in. And he made 10 golden lampstands as prescribed, and he set them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north side. He also made 10 tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north, and he made a hundred basins of gold. He made the court of the priests and the great court and the doors of the court and overlaid their doors with bronze, and he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots and the shovels and the basins. So Hiram finished the work that he did for the King Solomon on the house of God. The two pillars, the bowls, and the two capitals on the top of the pillars and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. Verse 14, he made the stands also, and the basins on the stands, and the one sea and the 12 oxen underneath it. The pots and the shovels, the forks, all the equipment for these Hurim Abi made of burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them. In the clay ground between Succoth and Zeradah. Solomon made all these things in great quantities, for the weight of the bronze was not sought. Couldn't even count it. So Solomon made all of the vessels that were in the house of God. The golden altar, the tables for the bread of presence, the lampstands for the lamps of pure gold to burn before the inner sanctuary as prescribed. The flowers, the lamps, the tongs of purest gold, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and firepans of pure gold 
and the sockets of the temple for the inner doors of the most holy place and for the doors of the nave of the temple were of gold. Thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver and the gold and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. This is amazing. This is a golden house filled with gold. That's what this temple is. This was the height of Israel's prominence and power and, and even godliness was at the beginning of Solomon's reign. And it's, it's just absolutely amazing. No expense was spared. It was jaw-dropping. You remember the Queen of Sheba? She goes to Jerusalem to visit this thing, and she sees all of what he's built, everything that's gone on, and she says, I have no breath left in me. It's that much gold. It is just amazing. It's everywhere. Anything that was, was wood was covered with some sort of fancy metal. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 3 is says, that's just the shadow. That's just the type. That physical reality. That's not the real special thing. You know what the real special thing is when we move into the new covenant where God doesn't live in a building as though he could anyway. It's when he lives in his people. That's the real special thing. Not because we're anything special, but because we have God inside of us. And the point that he's making is if Solomon and the Israelites spent that much time and and patience and skill and money and effort to build up the physical temple how much more should we build into one another with spiritual realities that's his point back in first corinthians 3 so to so turn back over there so now we have this idea of just how amazing the temple was in the old testament this is what they would have had in mind and he says this is how we should be treating one another in the new covenant not not covering each other with gold, of course. That's not the point. No, it's building into one another spiritual truths and spiritual realities, encouraging one another, praying for one another, being with one another. In every part of how we get together. So this is where we take all that information and we apply it to the church. The church is God's holy, sacred, blood-bought temple. If you have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in you. And not only you individually, but us collectively as a church together, the Holy Spirit is here. And how we treat one another is, is very much how we treat God's house. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And we should be building it up. That's the first reason. You are the temple of God. If you would not go into Solomon's temple with a sledgehammer and start wrecking things, we shouldn't wreck things with one another. We should do everything we can to pursue unity and grace. That's the... That's the context of what he's talking about. We are the temple of God, and so we should treat one another with holiness and reverence and respect and love. So don't divide because we are God's temple. Number two, don't divide because God will destroy those who divide the temple or who destroy the temple. Verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Answer, yes, and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if we get done here and, uh, and head home, and I notice that my door is kicked in, and I walk in and I realize somebody has trashed the place, I'm going to be pretty upset. And, and that person will probably not want to be there. 
when I walk in. In fact, I remember this interesting story. Uh, my mom's house got broken into um, when I was a kid. I think I must have been like 12 or 13. And my stepdad at the time, he, he's this like old school Vietnam vet, not a believer at all. I heard every curse word under the sun. And I heard what like, like he would do to this man if like he ever caught them. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, those, those old Vietnam vets, like they, they didn't play around. Um, anyway, that's just, unbelievers understand when you go into somebody's house and do something wrong, that there are consequences. God is threatening those who threaten his house. And what he's talking about with his house is not, these, not this building, it's the people. That's what he's talking about. If you are going to go in and destroy God's people, you better watch out because God says, and there's just no way to get around this, he will destroy you. That's exactly what he says. He will destroy you. It's a, it's a, it's a serious reality. You destroy God's temple, God destroys you. There is absolutely no place in the local church for frivolous division. None at all. Is there a place, again, for that people are straying from the gospel or, or sin is going overlooked or whatever? Yes. But not for frivolous division. Because it's like going in and taking a wrecking ball to God's house. It's just slamming into each other. That's what, that's what it's doing. And, and we, we don't have that. God threatens judgment. Now, Paul does leave this open a little bit. The word he uses for destroy in the original language is not one that necessarily means eternal damnation. He doesn't mean, hey, if you, if you are starting some division in the church, I'm just going to instantly send you to hell. This is not the unpardonable sin. In fact, the reason that Paul brings this up is because he's hoping the Corinthian church will stop their division. They'll stop dividing over Apollos and Cephas and Paul and, and everyone else. But he is warning the Corinthians in the hope that they will repent because there is personal vengeance that God will attack anyone who attacks his people. And we've seen that all throughout the Bible where God will not stand for those who divide. And I think that just the practical application here, you guys, is I think we need to stay, take a little step back and, and, and just think about how do we treat one another in the church of God? How do we talk about each other? How do we talk to each other? How do we love on each other? I don't have anything specific in mind, but, but I think this is clearly a warning that all of us need to take to heart about how we treat one another in the church. God takes us very seriously. It's easy to criticize and critique people who don't have all their stuff together. It's easy to want to simply divide because we're fed up with people. But we need to be very, very cautious how we treat the people of God. God, God threatens vengeance. So we don't divide because we are God's temple, and we don't divide because God will destroy those who destroy his home. The third reason that we don't divide, and this is, I think this is an interesting one, is because church leaders are actually just servants. That's all church leaders are. They're just servants. They're, they're nobody special, and that's what he gets to in verses 18 through 23. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise, because that's what they've been clamoring over, who's wise in this age? He says, you think you're wise? Then let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he, God, catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God, God's. 
And so if you remember from back in chapter 2, they were, they were arguing over these, these wise ways. You know, the, the Greeks seek wisdom. They, they want this, this outside knowledge to know more about God. And so wisdom was a big thing in Corinth, which, was, which is kind of just down the road from Athens where all this philosophical stuff was and, and would infiltrate into the church. And so it seems like part of what the Corinthians were doing is like, hey, you know what? If we align with our favorite leader, our favorite teacher, then actually we'll probably be able to advance the gospel faster. And so I'm actually of Apollos, because Apollos is doing it right. People are like, no, 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 no. Cephas has got it down. Like, Cephas is a man's man, like he's God's man, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Cephas, because, because that's who understands it. No, no, Apollos, he's the preacher man. Apollos has got a great, great preaching game, and he knows how to do it. I'm doing that. And other people are like, no, you guys, it's just Jesus. We're just under Jesus. Like, you've got all these factions going on, and it's all based on this worldly wisdom that's crept into this church where people think, well, if I just pick my favorite leader, then, then the gospel will be advanced. And the same thing happens today when some celebrity comes to faith in Jesus or people start liking their favorite celebrity pastor or whatever. Oh, Kurt Cameron came to faith in Jesus, and now the whole world's getting saved. God doesn't need Kurt Cameron or Justin Bieber or anybody else. God works through the lowest of the low. That's how the kingdom advances. And he says, you can't, you can't advance the kingdom by dividing the kingdom. That doesn't work. And that's what was going on in Corinth. Is they're all trying to divide up based on their favorite person. And, and Paul goes, it's just impossible for you to conquer by dividing yourselves. It just does not work. And Paul grabs these two quotes from the Old Testament to kind of back up his, to back up his logic. He, he says in verse 19, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Interesting, that's from the book of Job. That's from the mouth of Eliphaz, who we kind of raked over the coals. But Eliphaz did say a couple of things that were right. God will eventually catch the wise in their craftiness. The other one is from the book of Psalms. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. God knows the hearts of people. That's what he's getting at. He can judge. But here's what we need to understand is that very often people try to justify division. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were justifying their falling of Apollos or Cephas or Paul or whoever. They were doing everything they can to justify it. And he says, no, there's no justification and God knows your heart. God knows you really just want to get ahead in the Corinthian church. That's really what you want to do. You want to somehow exert power through these people, and it just doesn't work. And he says, actually, in God's economy, leaders are designed to serve. That's all leaders are, is, is they are servants. Verses 21 through 23, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. You're not theirs. They are yours. They are yours to use. This is called servant leadership in the Bible. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 20, he's talking about how different the kingdom of God is going to be than the Gentiles. Remember he says the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over each other. Like they walk in and I'm so big and bad and you're going you're gonna to submit to me. And then, then their benefactors lord it over them and it's just all this big power play. And he goes, that's not how the kingdom's going to work. No, if you want to be first, you'll be what? Last. That's how the kingdom works. The kingdom isn't a bunch of power plays trying to figure out who's in charge and how can I get ahead. That is, that's, there's only one head in the kingdom. That's Jesus. All the rest of us are some body part that is to serve the rest of the body. That's, that's all we are. And he says, your leaders are no different. They're there to serve you. We don't, 
We don't exalt them. And this is actually pretty clever because they had been saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. And he says, no, actually, you've got it wrong. Paul belongs to you. Apollos belongs to you. Cephas belongs to you. All of these servants belong to you. In fact, the whole world belongs to you. There's a sense in which you guys, because we are co-heirs with Christ and Christ owns everything, that we kind of own everything. We're waiting for the new heavens and new earth. That's when we kind of get the deed, as it were. But you can walk around this world and go, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Why is it mine? Because I'm with Jesus, and Jesus owns it all, and he says I'm a co-heir, and that's mine, and that's mine. But you can say that, and you can say that, and you can, we can all say that. We collectively, the kingdom, children of the kingdom, own it all with Christ and God. And that's our attitude as we work through this world. That when you were saved by Christ, you became a child of God. And there's a sense in which we own all things now, and that reality will give way in the future where we truly do own all things, and we reign with Christ. All of us can say that together. And so we don't need to clamor over things. We don't need to try and submit ourselves to, 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 to worldly ways of thinking that, that are anti-gospel. It's servant leadership that Paul has in mind here. And he, and he really hits it home here in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So again, he emphasizes he's, he's just a servant. That's all, it, that's all he is. The, the Greek word there for servant is kind of interesting. It's not the typical word slave, and it's not the word that we get deacon all the time. It's hooper etes. Hooper etes. And you know on those big galley ships where they had the oars coming out and they were rowing? A hooper etes was a rower in the bottom of that ship. Like they were the lowest of the low on the ship. You just rowed. That's all you did. 12, 20 hours a day, whatever the master told you to do, you just rode. He goes, you want to know how you view us as apostles? We're rowers. That's all we do. We just row. And you go, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to clamor over my favorite rower. That's kind of weird. He goes, that's all we are. We're just working together collectively for the kingdom of God. That's all we do. That's how you should regard us. Stop dividing over rowers. Last reason to stop dividing your leaders will be judged by God. Your leaders will be judged by God. Verses 3 through 5. He says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or even any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It's actually the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul doesn't really care how the Corinthians view him. They don't care if he's their favorite preacher or Apollos is their favorite preacher or Cephas or, or whoever. Really, all that matters is, is what God views of him. And he goes, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't even really see anything wrong in myself. But does that mean I'm innocent? No, because one day he will stand before the Lord and the Lord will judge his heart. We can, we can confuse ourselves and deceive ourselves in our own motives. Even, even when it looks good and what we're doing, we can have this deception thing going on in our hearts. He says, actually, God will judge us. And that's what matters. God will judge us. And at the end of that, he says at the very end of verse 5, then when the Lord comes, each one will receive his commendation from God.
Don't divide over leaders. Don't divide over your favorite preacher, your internet preacher, your whatever, anyone in here. Because we are designed by God to collectively serve one another to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. We thank you that you have given us this opportunity to serve one another and to love each other. And may our church do that faithfully. May you set aside any ambition, any selfish ambition, any pride, any arrogance, and give us only grace toward one another. We thank you for this food that we're about to eat. We thank you uh, for a time of fellowship, and we pray that you would bless our time together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.